the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hi, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. If you notice, we sound different again. Uh, We are continuing to do our remote recording for the podcast. Uh, We did a lot of pre-recorded episodes, so um, that's why it's such a far, far time into the pandemic that you're just now hearing us remotely. We we swear that we have not been hanging out. (laughs) Yeah. Six. I mean, we couldn't even do this six feet away. Yeah, you know, but we're making Especially it work. Comment how much we high five all the time too. Constant high fiving, totally. And I uh, got a new mic for for this episode. Um, last one we did, we were using a different mic, satellite mic for me. So um, yeah. I don't know. It's all it's all just trial and error. But we are determined to bring you this podcast because we love it so much, yep. and we love these movies so much. Well, our movie this episode is 1990s Tremors, which, uh, you know, it's his 30th anniversary. That is a good enough excuse uh, for me alone, but I also really love this movie. This was one of my uh, kind of ones that hit right when I was that age to, like, get into, you know, some fun monster movies. So it's such a movie that you could watch at a sleepover, no matter how old you were. Or something that'd be on Saturday afternoon and you get sucked into it. And something that anybody, like no matter your age, I feel like that this being a PG-13 movie, you know, maybe there's a little a little iffiness there. But really, I think anybody can watch this. I'd show this to an eight-year-old, really. I don't know what that says about me, but whatever. No, yeah, I think this is a really family-friendly movie. Minus yeah. one F-bomb and some mild violence. It's pretty mild, Yeah. So we're going to get into Tremors, um, a lot of behind the scenes. We'll talk about the special effects. There's a there's a lot going on in this movie, all practical effects. And if you listen to this podcast, you know that we love our practical effects here. And somehow we always manage to hit on these uh, first movies by a director. And, and this is uh, one as well. Um, it was Ron Underwood's first uh, big studio feature so we'll talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about him and about how this movie came to be and his friendship with the writers and of course one of the strongest things about this movie is the cast of characters so we will go into the cast and uh, talk about character dynamics tone of the movie you know why do we care about this why why should we care about this movie and what makes it so fun and we'll talk a little bit about the reception of the movie as well as a tiny bit on the franchise this movie really Uh, spawned quite a franchise uh, with multiple sequels and a television series as well. There's one coming out this year, isn't there? I believe so. Well, it might not now, but yeah, there's one that works for sure. Yeah. So we'll talk about the franchise. And yeah, a lot lot of Tremors talk. Um, After our discussion on Tremors, we'll get into our picks of the week. I stayed heavy with monster movies with the 1997 movie The Relic. I cannot wait to hear about this. I remember the movie cover when I worked at a video store, and I am fairly certain I actually haven't seen it. So um, I'm going to need to, when when we can be around each other, Justin, I'm going to need to borrow this one. Yeah, it was was a first-time watch for me uh, last week. I'd never 
seen it and somehow I feel like I kind of missed it. I don't really remember that movie being out. So, um, I took a chance and I don't know. I really enjoyed it. That's awesome. And kind of strange too, because the, the movie, my pick of the week, I did raising Kane, and I hadn't seen that. I'd seen it once before a long time ago. And this was basically felt like a fresh revisit for me too. And this movie is connected to tremors by way of Gail Ann Hurd, the rock star producer, of uh, Tremors and The Abyss. I mean, what what movie hasn't she done, really? So The Relic and Raising Cain. Totally, all of these movies, I love that uh, we do these picks of the week because they are so different. Yeah. Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip from Tremors, Lindsay, can you just give us a lowdown on what the plot, what's the story of this movie, this this monster movie? Of course I would. So Tremors uh, focuses on these local handyman, Earl and Val, who make ends meet by doing odd jobs for the folks of Perfection, Nevada, population around about 15. Now, feeling stale and like they've just been doing the same thing for years, this duo look to hit the road and start fresh in another town. So this movie's set up kind of like a mystery versus a horror movie. They come across unexplained deaths and are physically blocked from leaving town. And realizing that the terror is coming from beneath the ground, Earl, Val, a seismology grad student studying nearby, and the rest of the town battle massive, seriously terrifying subterranean beasts, which hunt by sensing vibrations in the ground and have snake-like, real nasty tentacles coming out of their ghastly beaks. Really, really grotesque creatures. So nasty. Well, thank you for that, Lindsay. Of course. We'll get into our first clip from Tremors, and we'll come back. We'll talk about it. All righty. Yeah. You know, I think they shoot right out of its mouth, and they hook you, and they pull you right in. Good thing we stopped before it killed anybody else. Look, this is important, you know. This is like, well, let's just say it. This is probably the biggest zoological discovery of the century. Hey! Hey, check this out! I found the ass in! Jesus, we really caught something here! Wow. Man, that's one big mother. This must be the old boy had your seismos working overtime. Yeah. Yeah, it must push itself along with these. You know, all of them pushing at once. That's why it moves so fast. I mean, this thing had sensors tripping all over the place. No. Hey, Rhonda, you ever heard of anything like this before? Oh, sure, Earl. Everybody knows about them. We just didn't tell you. Oh, hell, man, no one ever saw anything like this. We're really onto something here. I'll tell you one damn thing. Old Chang don't get his slick mitts on this for no measly 15 bucks. You got that right. Ooh. All right, here's the plan. We need a, a flatbed. Yeah, right, with a winch? Yeah, five ton, maybe. No, 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 no. Don't want to winch it. Don't want to winch it to tear it all up. All right, a crane. Yeah, a crane with, uh, with lifting straps. Hey, hey, shut up! The way I figure it, there's three more of these things. What? Three more? I've got seismographs all over this valley. Now, if you compare the different readings, Here's one at 2 o'clock yesterday. But here's one three miles away at the exact same time. Now, that's two. But here... Yeah, yeah, we'll take your word for it. Yeah, wh where's your truck? Just beyond that hill. 
So like we were saying in the beginning, uh, Tremors was the first uh, studio feature from director Ron Underwood. Tremors actually came to be because of his longtime friendship with writers Steve Wilson and Brett Maddock. So Tremors came to be by way of the writers, of course, credited in the movie as S.S. Wilson, uh, standing for Steve Wilson and Brent Maddock. They were this team of um, writers who would work on educational videos, educational safety videos for the Navy. And so they've been doing this for a really long time. and, And as the story goes, the story of Tremors is that they were filming out in the field one day and were on this boulder in the desert and just thought, you know, what would happen if there was something on the ground and we couldn't get off this boulder? Like if you're a kid and you play that game, like the the floor is lava and you've got to jump from, you know, stationary object to the next one to, to just not hit the floor. So that was the idea behind this and kind of wrote up, you know, an idea for this story and just put it away. Not really ever thinking anything will come of it, but you know what? There's an idea. Fast forward a little bit, and these guys are responsible for writing the movie Short Circuit, which was a huge success when it came out. I believe it was in 86. So Short Circuit did really well, and their agent just said, okay, guys, we got to strike while the iron's hot. Like, what other stories do you have? And the first thing that came to their mind was what they had called Land Sharks, which would soon come to be Tremors. And they shopped this around um, a little bit, and pretty much studios really weren't interested in it. It just kind of, no one was really just interested in a monster movie at that time. Nancy Roberts gives this movie to, or lets uh, Gail Ann Hurd take a look at it, and pretty much immediately she takes to it and uh, gets Universal to sign on. So Steve Wilson and Brent Maddock get Ron Underwood on board, and they had worked with him before, and as we said before, this was his first feature film. He had been doing educational videos for National Geographic, and it had like, you know, a hundred or so under his belt. So he wasn't completely green behind the camera, um, but this was his first feature. So we've got this team together, and Tremor starts to get underway. And it was renamed from Land Sharks due to, uh, depending on how familiar you are with Saturday Night Live, there was a sketch in the 70s kind of piggybacking on the success of Jaws called Land Shark. I mean, if you know if you know SNL, you're pretty aware of that skit. And um, so anyway, they had to rename it. <laughs> Land Shark is a pretty terrible name anyway. It's so a pretty it's, it's a pretty bad name. It's, yeah. It's uh, I think Tremors is a really appropriate <laughs> and like kind of cool title. Yeah, very much so. I think it was also called Beyond Perfection too, which to me Sounds like a movie about ice skating or something. Yeah, Tremors is a much better title. And I think it gives the monster its own identity. When you throw the word shark in there, you're already relating it to like something that exists already. It's ambiguous, yeah. Yeah. So like you said, I mean, uh, Ron Underwood was, you know, a seasoned director as far as like someone who, you know, was used to uh, working with a crew and directing but hadn't really done very much narrative work. Thankful for his friendship with two writers who you know, already had a couple of successful uh, movies under their belt that they had written. Um, I think it's like, it was like a really good pairing and it's kind of wild. Like Tremors is such a confident and kind of like bold movie. It's not a real stylish movie, but it's, you know, it's, it just seems like a very confidently made movie, especially for a first time director In interviews with uh, Ron Underwood. He's just, he seems almost like a, like a dorkier Ron Howard 
if, if you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's just, you know, yeah. spy, smiling and kind of like so easygoing. I mean, I don't know if that's what he's like on set, but um, from the interviews, you just you wouldn't expect that this was the guy who made, you know, one of the more acclaimed monster movies of the 90s. If, if anything, when I watch interviews with him, I'm like, that's the guy that I want. You know, I want a monster movie from that guy because he looks like he had fun making it and loves to talk about it. Like you read this script, you know that you've got a lot of effects that you've got to deal with. And that's not something that someone's going to necessarily clamor towards or be maybe you might be excited about it. But that's a lot of work ahead of you. And so for him to sign on and be all about it, that that, that uh, says something. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of things in play, I think, that make this movie really work. I mean, one being that I think it's such a strong script, I think that it really does a good job of, number one, giving us a location that we're not altogether familiar with in movies outside of Westerns. You know, this movie that takes place almost primarily during the daytime with exteriors. You know, there's only a couple of scenes where it takes place inside. So you have these like big, bright, beautiful, sunny exteriors and that's pretty eye-catching. Altogether, right away, makes it original. And there's something to be said about a terrorizing thing happening during the day, because that doesn't really happen in, in horror movies or monster movies. It's Darkness is the thing that you know horror movies rely on, is something like hiding in the dark, and this is coming up out of the ground, and you full-on see it. That's one thing that this movie does not shy away from, is, is showing you the monster. And that's impressive. And I think, too, like what makes a movie like this work is is having like a really solid uh, group of characters that we that we care about. You know, and I think the script does a good job. And the movie really introduces everybody very quickly. We're introduced to Val and Earl, played by Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. And I really like how the script shows a small town, shows the characters of this small town might be a little eccentric but they don't it doesn't seem to be mocking the sort of um, small town folk I think it toes the line sometimes but I do think that it, it it's very respectful and very tasteful and I get the sense that these guys are two dudes that are handymen and they do all these odd jobs but they also have the ambition and the foresight to like dream of a bigger life outside of this town just over the horizon yeah definitely the the setting of this movie is a character by itself and if anything everyone that's in the movie like I was talking to my dad about this and he's not like the biggest movie buff or anything but he loves tremors and I didn't know this about him um but he said that one of the reasons is because well one it's like an adventure movie and it's like you know out hunting something but it's that it's everyday guys it's just like normal dudes And there's something that's relatable to that. Like you were saying, there's maybe like a little bit of not stereotype. I wouldn't even say stereotyping or like a parody of some of of a particular type of person. I think it's just the the characters in this. They're all like you've met these people before. There's nothing that's like out of the ordinary. Yeah. And I I really appreciate, too, that the movie we have a, a third central character, you know, a strong female uh, central third character and the movie's not all about machoism it's it's two guys who like they want they i think in their mind you know they want to be macho but they're always like after a while they're kind of looking to finn carter for the answers you know they're always asking her well what are these things from because she's the smart scientist who's on the scene you know even though the, the you know she hasn't 
seen these before and you know and she's the first one that comes up with the idea of like pole vaulting across the rocks like they're arguing they're not listening to her and she's like you know what i'm just gonna do this thing and then they immediately start following her lead and mm-hmm. sure there's times where machuism is brought into the movie you know like michael gross's character or burt gummer character but for the most part i find this like to be again like this like really kind of respectful cast it doesn't feel like people are like uh at each other's throats no one seems real spiteful there's no like overly annoying characters and that's something that i really don't see often in an ensemble piece and i think a lot of that you know again i i I think attribute a lot of that to the script and how well written these characters were yeah I, i mean think about any movie even down to like night of the living dead there's always somebody who's causing a problem who's trying to throw a wrench into the master plan you know of of how to get out of this and this movie doesn't have that and Tremors is really a movie that lends itself to being a macho movie. Like you kind of think that it would be almost, but it's it's really not. Even you were talking about the pole vaulting scene, and that's probably my favorite scene in the movie. I love that one because it does demonstrate a moment of when there could be a macho moment. Like so Finn Carter's character, you know, shows them how to vault from rock to rock, and Fred Ward's like the older, more you know, masculine man, and he tries to do it and totally fails and falls back, you know. And then Kevin Bacon goes, nails nails the jump, and my immediate assumption is going to be Fred Ward's going to say something kind of crappy to him, and he goes, all right, that was pretty good. They're encouraging their buddies, and this is not a buddy movie, I would say, but it's very even, and it doesn't matter the gender or who they are in the movie. Everyone's equal footing and looking to just figure out how to get the hell away from these things. And I also like the humor that's peppered in the script. It's not entirely a laugh out loud funny, but the, a lot of the lines are humorous and the, the, you know, they, they put them in humorous scenes, the way they set things up. Some of the lines with like Finn Carter's character, like everybody's always asking her where these things come from because she's a scientist and you know, <laughs> she, she's like, these things are unprecedented. One of the guys is like, yeah, but where do they come from? <laughs> You know, it's it's good that you bring that up because we look at these movies and we immediately want to know, yeah, where did this thing come from? And as the writers said in, in talking about coming up with this idea that monster movies from like the 50s, pretty much monsters came from outer space or were an experiment or prehistoric or due to radiation or something like that. And the idea that we don't know or that maybe these creatures and tremors that are called graboids, <laughs> I have feelings about that name, but that's what they're called, um, that we don't know, that we don't know what they are. And I like that mystery. It's like the Michael Myers mystery. Like we don't, I like not knowing in the original Halloween what makes him the way he is you know and that's the same thing with this I like assuming that I think that they've been there the whole time but we don't know and that 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 mystery is what makes it even scarier yeah and 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 then think to it, it it avoids the movie having what you see in so many monster movies where somebody like the movie stops so they can explain everything that's happening and how they're going to have to kill it. In this one, there's a slight evolution with the story and that, mm-hmm. you know, they have some stumbles along the way and the end climax sequence when they get out on the rocks, the movie's already established them being stuck out on the rocks before. So I love that, 
the the climax is like real quick and you're you're not really expecting you don't know what's going to happen when Kevin Bacon you know starts running and yeah. you know and throws the bomb and, and there's a part of me that's like no man don't get rid of your only bomb too and I love that they you know they bring the stampede it came to me I love that they I always love it when the movie brings something back from the very beginning mm-hmm. you know whether it be like a line or and not even like in a like on the nose foreshadowing way just like I always find that to be very satisfying. No, I mean, it helps tie the story together when you start out with something in in the first three minutes of the movie and then the last three, you bring it back to that. And whether whether you strayed far away from that or, or what, it gives it the sense of, of being complete. I think the other thing with Tremors is what we're what we're talking about here is when you have a movie that's so out there and seems like there's no way that this could be based in reality it deals with these graboids like they are reality, you know, and there's nothing that really takes you out of that. And I think not explaining it or not trying to give them a story. Um, it's more just a movie that's based on reactions, like how you would react in the situation. And do you really have time when you're battling for your life to give a crap about where they come from? No, you're not going to care. You know what I mean? There, there are a lot of instances in this which I feel go on human instinct, which is going to just make you go right along with the right and not not question the reality. Right. Well, uh, before we go to another clip, I uh, wanted to talk real, real briefly about the special effects in this movie. I mean, we've, we've talked so many times about digital versus practical. We're obviously big fans of practical effects over here. Don't push pause. And I think this movie is a a really great example of doing, you know, some very low budget effects to, to great uh, payoffs in the movie, not showing the creature that much, I think benefits, you know, kind of showing uh, something getting sucked out under the ground or like when the guy's jackhammer gets dragged across the street, you know, when he, it's my second favorite scene. I love that scene. When he drills into the tremor, you know, effects are supposed to make the universe. These monsters seem believable and I think that there's a really good balance of like just showing you enough of the monster to know that it's real, that it's a danger that exists without uh, showing so much to where we, you know, we go, oh, well, that looks fake. Yeah. And with a lot of these things, when when we don't see the graboids, these effects are some somewhat simple, you know, like the the scene you were talking about with the jackhammer, that was a track that was lightly under the surface that once that jackhammer goes into it, it's pulled under the ground and it looks so cool like from from how we see it on film, but it's also relatively easy on how that was accomplished. And even something as terrifying as thinking about the monster coming at you underneath the ground and underneath some floorboards and it coming at you, you know, like this giant hump. That's a buoy that's underneath the 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 dirt being pulled, you know, and but it's not what it's not what we see and it's terrifying and it's terrifying because we see enough of the monster that you know exactly what that what that thing is. And with with that said, I don't know about you Justin, but with all of the movement that we see that the graboid doesn't do, that the creature is pretty stationary when it does come up out of the ground. It lunges, you know, this and that way and comes up and 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 whatnot. But it's pretty stationary for the most part. But it doesn't make it any less terrifying because we see it moving 
underneath the ground in all these other shots. I also think it benefits uh, not so much with the special effects, but the fact that there's like multiple tremors. There's not just one singular monster that they're trying to defeat. So we have these opportunities to see like two or three of them and they're causing this destruction, you know, one's in this part of town and one's over here. I love that you call them tremors too, because you can't help, but like, that's the name of the, the creature. The graboids. <laughs> the graboids. That's, no, I want to call it a tremor too, because I like that name better than graboid. But no, I just, I love that you call them that. That's all. Now, this movie being basically all practical, I mean, it was all practical effects. There's nothing digital in this. This is another example of a movie that I don't know, and and I've known this the whole time, like especially in doing research, that there were plenty of miniatures used in this movie. You know, I'm not a, a special effects person. I don't know how to make that. I wish I did. But man, I am duped every time. Like I know, I know when the miniatures happen. I know when there are matte paintings in the background. But dude, I can't tell. I can't tell the difference, and it's because it's done so friggin' well in this movie. Yeah, miniatures to me they blow me away. Like the work of miniatures in movies. Not to go too far off uh, the rails here, but uh, Grand Budapest Hotel is a perfect example of like using miniatures to great an amazing effect of, you know, all the camera movements in the hotel that being just like a big model um, or like a little model of a real hotel. Like the attention to detail and all of this and for something that's maybe three seconds on screen, the the amount of work that goes into it is just astonishing. And And even going from one shot that you're looking at the actors and it, it messes with your perception and because you accept like looking in this one shot of looking at the actors and then the camera swoops over and you don't even notice it's like a flawless cut, it swoops over to a miniature shot. It's unbelievable how seamless a, a lot of these uh, scenes are in, in Tremors. And it, and it can be overdone, but I'm still a sucker for the point of view camera of the monster or killer that's attacking, you know, you seeing their point of view swooping underneath, you know, coming up towards <laughs> yeah. somebody. It's, I mean, that's just a great camera technique, and I think it works every time when it's, you know, used tastefully. If you're going to use POV shots, this is the movie to do it in. Yeah. And also, um, we got to make mention, too, not to destroy any idea of what these graboids are, but um, the little tentacles that we see in the movie so many times, those are all hand puppets. I mean, not all of them. A lot of them are animatronic and, like, controlled by, like, remote control basically it's so real how does it look like that it looks uh, like between the artistry of of creating that and then knowing that someone's hand is in there and it looks that terrifying man i and it's not even that it's quick cuts you know and they're and they're cheating something by you know just it being a quick scene it's we see we see this creature a lot and man it is um you know, this movie's not terrifying or anything to me, but it is a great, great monster flick. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very thankful that the movie was made just before sort of like the bad digital age of effects because I think it just like just got in under the wire of like being a movie that's still, you know, even watching it, you know, these last few weeks um, still is a real solid movie and like still looks really good. I mean, the effects yeah. hold up. Yeah. And with this too... There's a lot of times, like I'm Justin, you know I'm not the biggest fan of westerns or really 
dry settings in oh, movies I, oh, for some I reason. I know. <laughs> um, but for some like, reason, before we start this podcast, you're like, we're not doing any westerns. If you're cool with that, I'm down. So, uh, we- uh Tremors is like a western, right? Um, like, I don't know if I really that's feel like western doing that. as you get. Yeah. <laughs> um, for one of the reasons they don't really appeal to me is I don't like feeling. I feel like I have dry mouth, you know, after I just feel like ugh, I can't can't deal. I need like a gallon of water after I watch that. And that's my problem. One thing that I like about Tremors is that there's this perfect balance between the Graboid being for all intents and purposes. It's like a giant earthworm slug dinosaur like thing that lives in the ground. And that's that's going to be relatively dry, like a dry creature. Right. And. And I think it started off super, super dry. And the um, special effects guys behind this, Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis of, uh, oh, God, what are they from? Um, Amalgamated Dynamics. They originally started off with like a super dry, like kind of like dinosaur creature. And they had come off of, I think they said they had come off of doing aliens and everything was like drippy and slimy and gross. And they were trying to not do that. But what they found in after they had done some of this was that people that were looking at it were having the same reaction that I do to Westerns. Like, mm, it just feels like, I don't know, there's just like something I don't I don't like the way it looks. I don't like the way it feels like it needs to, to be wet or something. And that's when um, I think one of the best additions to the to the Graboid is like the slimy grossness that emanates from its mouth or like when it you know when one of them dies we see this gross slime that leaks out of them and that to me is like one of the best additions to this monster and and how much they talk about how much they stink you know in the movie (laughs) you almost kind of feel like you can smell it with the mix of all that slime and grossness like totally it's, it's, it's it's a it's a good effect and I think we should tell our listeners a little bit um, of what a lot of that slime and gore, to not to take the mystery out of anything, but I do love um, what that slime and gore is primarily made out of. Yeah, once I found out that a lot of it was made out of the inside of pumpkin guts, like I can really see the pumpkin now. Whenever yeah. the, the uh, grab boy gets smushed on the rocks, you kind of see that orange goop. Yeah, like pumpkin with cotton stuffing in pantyhose so when you see that stuff flying through and then it splats on something it looks so good and it's this controlled splat so you have like a primary gross pantyhose splat but then all of that pumpkin crap just goes flying everywhere it was a really good idea and i think that makes for one of the another one of the funny moments in the movie where they they blow one of them up the first one they blow up and they're all cheering and then all the guts start falling on top of them such a good moment, yes. Well, let's stop there. We'll go to another clip from Tremors, and then we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about the cast. We'll talk about the reception of the movie, and we'll talk a little bit about all those many, many Tremors sequels. Sounds good. Wait, wait, wait. This one's not falling for it. This one ain't dumb. He's trying to trick us. Use your bomb. It's our last one. What else are you gonna use it for? 
So what if we make it to the rocks? We'll be dead in three days anyway. Well, I want to live for the three days. What the hell? What's the matter? Use the bombs, for God's sake! Throw that bomb, man! Scare him away! Throw the bomb. This bastard ain't smarter than us. For Christ's sake, Val. I'm gonna go for it. Go for what? So once again, we have a movie that we love that we're talking about for the podcast that has somewhat of ensemble cast. I mean, there's clearly your two main stars in this that are Fred Ward and and Kevin Bacon. But, you know, once we start getting introduced to the town, we start seeing some of these other characters. Now, some of them aren't really on screen for very long, but uh, the other two main characters um, outside of Finn Carter and the other two mentioned are Reba McIntyre and uh, Michael Gross. Man, I love them as supporting characters. Reba McIntyre really dialing it in for, I, I don't think that she really had to stretch too far for this. Like she, she knows her country and she knows her guns fit right in with this cast. And Michael Gross stepping out of Family Ties, I think he had just wrapped Family Ties, like the entire series, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, then started immediately shooting Tremors. Kind of a departure, uh, aside from a TV movie or two that he had done. But um, definitely a a good, uh, not parody, I would say. I'd say that Burt Gummer is somebody that I came across in my youth in Southern Missouri, most definitely. Yeah, this sort of like gun-loving guy who's like, you know, almost excited for World War III to happen so he can use all the stuff he's been buying over the last like three decades. I can name at least two people off the top of my head who I know have armories in their basement. So yeah, this guy exists for sure. And his wife, who is just as gun loving and ready for anything, Reba McIntyre. Um, I, I love the equal partnership. Again, another partnership, um, having a man and a woman being equals like there's no real he he's macho in his own yeah. bro broy way but it's not uh putting her down in any ways and that's really cool yeah it's it's wild to me that this is reba mcintyre's first uh movie role i remember in one of the interviews with uh director ron underwood he was saying when he was casting that the studio said hey you know there's this recording artist country music artist reba mcintyre who's really huge she's been thinking about getting into acting and he said he was kind of a little bit put off because he was worried about, you know, oh, we're just going to throw someone in here because she, you know, is a recording artist and hasn't had any experience. And he said that right when he met her, he knew uh, she'd be perfect. And she really is. She had just has this like natural way about her, though. It's hard for me. I don't know if you get this at all. I can't what? shake it when I'm watching Tremors. It's like um, Reba McIntyre, which I'm assuming is just her like sort of natural way she talks and her vibe. It reminds me, of, it's like Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona is like chan channeling <laughs> Reba McIntyre in Tremors. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see that. Reba McIntyre is just being herself, though. You know, you know? and just, the, you know, where she's, uh, <laughs> where, where uh, her husband, played by Michael Gross and Fred Ward, kind of get into it. Or, you know, they're like fighting and, and she's like, she's <laughs> yeah. like, come on, honey, come on. I know, I know. Yeah, he, he thinks he knows everything. Just, just calm down. <laughs> 
I love that though. Isn't that like a perfect like dynamic of a of a relationship though? She's like, Bert, it's... you didn't even get any penetration with the elephant gun. <laughs> There's so many good lines and delivered with such sincerity that their sincerity adds the humor to it yeah. too. And Finn Carter, uh, who plays Rhonda LeBeck, the uh, seismology grad student that is studying vibrations in the area. Going back again to 50s monster movies, you know, we always do have to have some type of like authority figure, you know, like a, a scientist or a police officer or something like that, that that's our grounding figure. But what I like about Finn's character is that she's a student, so she doesn't know everything and she's learning and she's looked at as the expert, you know, and she's just going off her gut, just like um, Val and Earl are. And again, that adds to this whole equal footing thing. And so it's this, this idea that we don't have an authority figure in all of this and that everybody really has to come together. And, and Finn's character is very well developed. She's not a damsel in distress or anything like that. All of these characters are so richly developed. And I know that for Ron Underwood, someone, you know, coming to a a feature film for the first time, having that kind of set in stone that you can bank on all of your actors really bring in their A game. That was something that he was really hoping for, for this movie. And my uh my absolute favorite character in in this movie is uh the Earl Bassett character portrayed by Fred Ward. I talked about Fred Ward a little bit when my pick of the week was Southern Comfort, and he's solid in that he's solid in the right stuff. But I think he really brings the perfect level of the Southern gentleman mixed with like a little bit of quirkiness, uh, mixed with like you know the everyday everyday man character. My dad said that that's his favorite character in the movie, and I said, well, Dad, that's you. That's you. If you were in Tremors, you would be Fred Ward. You're just, like, you're the guy that I know is going to figure out how to get me out of a jam, and no matter how we're going to do it, it's going to be the smartest, most practical thing, and if we, even if we don't get out of it, we're going we're gonna to go down trying, you know? And I, I, I think he gives off some some of the most humor and I love that he's like the voice of reason to sort of the, the younger cockier Valentine played by uh, Kevin Bacon. And Kevin Bacon, I've toggled between is Kevin Bacon known more for tremors or footloose to me, it's tremors, but I know to some other people it would be footloose. I think that it's split. Like I think that there's probably a generation that's maybe 10 years older than us. That's going to, that will forever see Kevin Bacon is like the footloose character to me, like nineties, Kevin Bacon is like the Kevin Bacon that I love starting with tremors and tremors is kind of like the role that, that I think I'll always, you know, be signature to, to my mind with, with like Kevin Bacon as a lead. Yeah, I think, I mean, there was definitely a switching point, and I think that did start with Tremors, and I think really kicked into high gear for him in the 90s when he was in JFK with, like, everyone else in Hollywood. Yeah. But that but that really, like, that set into motion more weightier roles for him that showed a little bit more versatility in, in his acting. Like, for me, I think I was set up to always be a little annoyed with Kevin Bacon because I remember him from my youth in Animal House, and he sucks in Animal House. Yeah. Um, I mean, not his acting or anything, his character, but 
but who he evolved into in the 90s and beyond like yeah i mean i think that's with anyone that starts off so young yeah he his career has definitely gone through an evolution and i'm sure he's probably very proud of that these days and i i really um i i I, one of my favorite roles of his is river wild i think he plays a really good uh kind of like menacing bad guy yeah that's a good movie i've thought about doing that for pick of the week if it if it ever comes up, I like that movie a lot. Yeah. And sort of rounding out the cast, you know, a lot of tiny bit parts. I'd really like to make mention of uh, Victor Wong, who plays uh, Walter Chang, who owns the uh, general store and also is the one who dubbed them Graboids. Uh, yeah. He, he's always popping up in, you know, a lot of 80s faves of mine, like Golden Child, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince yeah. of Darkness. And I think he brings a nice eccentric uh kind of quirkiness to the to the store you know and that's their meeting place and of course he goes down like Quentin Jaws is the one that gets uh <laughs> e- eaten alive by the by the tremor his death is so good though like he should be that, that's a real real good terrible death it's worthy and Victor Wong I love seeing him in in movies he's he's always a great addition to films um one little little thing that I was happy to discover and didn't know until I was like halfway through it and was like, was that so-and-so is uh, the character of Nancy, who's um, a a mom in town and played by Charlotte Stewart. And I didn't really realize until I was like, who is that? And I was like, Charlotte Stewart, wait, Charlotte Stewart is Henry's girlfriend from Eraserhead. So if you know Eraserhead and that weird movie that we've done a podcast on, that's Nancy in the movie. I love, love, love that she is in Tremors. And her daughter um, is the uh, few years younger version of Lex from uh, Jurassic Park, uh, played by Ariana Richards. A lot of these people that had bit parts in in the first Tremors uh, come back for Tremors 3, you know, including... uh... Was it uh, Tony Gennaro who played Miguel? Mm. You know, they mm-hmm. bring back Ariana Richards. They bring back five people from Tremors 1 for the third Tremors. And I and thought good, that was a pretty good move, you know. Yeah, yeah, why not come back? I mean, if no matter if your movie's going to, or, you know, this franchise is, is going to direct a video not having a big theatrical release, that there is an audience for it that wants to see them, I mean, hell, why not? You know, the audience is out there. People want to see the story no matter how it um, evolves. I really enjoyed Tremors, too. I really liked it. Um, I like that Fred Ward gets his his chance at romance. His sidekick was not my favorite part of of the movie, but as as a story and as a, you know, sequel to the great first one, um, my, I really liked it, but it does show, along with many of the other sequels, the things that worked in the original Tremors that were somewhat lacking in in some of the sequels. For me, like I, I did the deed, I, I watched just about every Tremors movie over the last, uh, I guess, three weeks here. Luckily, they were all on Netflix uh, right along the time we were doing this. Yeah, Tremors two, it was. I enjoyed it. You know, I thought that. I agree with you. What it lacks in character, it makes up for story. But the characters 
as the Tremors movies went on, they just get more and more cartoony. And they kind of keep going back to the Burt Gunner character, who is a fun character in the first Tremors movie. I don't know that he makes like the best like central character. And he kind of like from part three on kind of is the main focus, you know, is, mm-hmm. is him kind of just doing what he does. And that's like getting bigger and better art- artillery to like blow up Tremors. <laughs> and, it, and as the movies go on, they honestly, I almost think in descending order, like as the as they go, they get worse as each one goes on. I mean, um, don't they usually with every sequel? Yeah, I mean, a, you know, the only thing I'll say with Tremors 3 that, that kind of surprised me was that they went back to perfection. They, uh, you know, brought back some main characters, but that movie was really drawn out and there was a lack of story. But I did like that they brought back a lot of the characters you know that we grew to like in the first one um but fred ward like you know he 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 only made it to part two um i think after that they were kind of these like very pretty low budget straight to video and kind of relied heavily on like pretty bad digital effects and the last one that came out that i saw which was uh tremors a cold day in hell i believe was the the Mm -hmm. subtitle um man it's it was it was really tough it was really tough to get through um the fourth one i'll give it i'll give it credit it um tries to do a little something different and it's a prequel so they go back in time and it's kind of like more old-timey atmosphere but again a lot of the other ones man they just kind of they kind of lack they lack good story and they lack um the rich characters that we had in the first tremors there was a television series that came out i want to say it was 2003 the series isn't terrible yeah i I enjoyed the series more than i did the sequels though uh, again with the the same with the sequels the you know that you could tell that they just didn't have much budget or time to really do very believable effects so it kind of suffers there but some of the characters and stories in the television series I enjoyed a little bit better and supposedly they, they started shooting uh, like either a new series or a new movie with Kevin Bacon and yeah. Fred Ward. And I don't know the full story on that. Forgive me for not looking that up, but I, I do know that it got uh, a lot. There was a lot of interest in it and then somehow it got canceled. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was made and it premiered, but after it premiered, it didn't get picked up. So I think it just kind of like died. It was one of those things where, Money was put into it, and then no one was there to buy it. So it was just kind of what it was. But Kevin Bacon has has always said, I think he has developed a lot of love for his character. And, you know, what happened to Val after he just, like, bailed? You know, what happened to he and Earl? And I think he was always interested in that story. I would be interested in that story, too, and curious to see if maybe if something doesn't come from that series if there could be some type of offshoot of that story that's maybe a not direct to video but who knows i don't know there's obviously an interest in in this story out there um and thinking back to tremors 2 and and uh, what i loved about it uh, was that it did that thing you know how we talked about the stampede thing from from tremors like it being mentioned in the first three minutes and then that coming back in like the last three minutes that happens in tremors too too of of fred ward has his calendar uh this uh playmate on his on his wall and it's you know always to remind him that um 
he he can want something, but he's never going to get it just to remind him of what he can't have, like something real kind of depressing. And then come to find out that the woman that is involved in the story played by Helen Shaver, who I love from I, I love her from a lot of things, but there's a good spot in my heart for a movie called Desert Hearts that she's in. But Helen Shaver plays the kind of like the Finn character, basically. But she turns out to be the playmate that uh, he's been lusting after since like the 70s or whatever. And, you know, they fall for each other. Like, I like that, even though it is so cheesy. But I will admit that I guess I was sucked into the story enough that I didn't see it coming. Like three beats before when I was like, no way. That's not. Oh, my God, it is. That's adorable. Like I was, I was sucked into it, and I didn't mind the effects in in Tremors Two Aftershocks. I genuinely liked it as a as a sequel, and the others are positives and drawbacks to them. Um, I love that they exist. Um, I'm just always gonna say after that initial sequel, sometimes franchises become another animal after that initial sequel. Yeah, and I mean, I probably didn't help myself by not spacing them out. Um, I don't, I don't know that watching uh, like you watched them six all movies, right after, yeah, yeah, one after another. It's not really like a binge series, in my opinion, you know, because it's just kind of a lot of the same thing. But not unless you're on hard drugs. Yeah, unless you consider Miller Lite a hard drug, I was not. Uh, <laughs> You know, Depends on how many. I mean, if yeah. by Tremors five, maybe if you were on like a thirty pack, it could have been. I, I got to tell you, really it, good. As many Miller lights as it took, still <laughs> didn't do much for Tremors six. <laughs> you want to start drinking, you know, two or three hours before you sit down and watch that one. <laughs> All right, now I'm ready to go. Get back in the saddle, Tremors six. All right, six. what movie right. am I watching? <laughs> um, honey, honey, saddle up. It's Tremors six. Well, let's get back to like Tremors 1. So Tremors was not a big hit when it came out. It wasn't necessarily like a total bomb, but it didn't really do a whole lot at the box office. But it was one of those movies that really made a huge impact on VHS. And, I, you know, I remember this, you know, the, the poster for this movie, I think, is one of the last great 90s or really movie posters like the 90s. Sort of mid-90s on, we kind of went into the movie posters that had, like, just the big pictures of the faces of the actor or whatever. But I distinctly just seeing Tremors in the video store and, like, the it coming up out of the ground and the tagline and them above the ground um, with just Tremors across it really big. I always, I've always loved that poster. It is really good and very effective. And like the movie in that I know that I'm going to watch a monster movie, but the poster doesn't terrify me but i'm really interested and i want to know i want to know what that giant thing is under their feet yeah it's a it's a beautiful beautiful poster just like the movie the movie is gorgeous too but i think i think the movie really suffered from what what most i think monster movies uh suffer from and that's they're always hard to market because it's like you know you don't want to market as too funny you don't want to market as too scary is it a horror movie is it a comedy is it you know sci-fi 
And I think that's always the struggle with trying to get a movie like this out to the public. And when you watch it now, it seems so clear, like, oh, man, this is, you know, it's comedy elements mixed with, like, a really classic monster movie. But I think at the time it came out, that probably wasn't the best idea to try to sell the public on. Is like, we're going back to the 50s. This is popular in the 50s. We've, we've improved on the 50s monster movie. That just wasn't mm-hmm. a way to sell the movie. So... Um, cause the trailer to this movie is like, man, it's, it's pretty rough. It, it's not a real enticing trailer. If you've seen the movie, there was another thing that they were saying that could have been a drawback to why, why the movie didn't perform so well when it came out. And when it was initially due, um, to be released, um, it was given an R rating and it, that was due to not sex or violence it was due to the usage of the word fuck and it was like 20 times or something like that and so that gave it an r rating which automatically limits your viewership or like who can go without a parent you know to go see this movie like i was saying at the beginning of this i would let an eight-year-old watch this movie but um i think that that actually might have something to do with what they decided to do to get a pg-13 rating which was to take all of the fucks out of this movie except for one and i guess it was you know in in the spirit of how it was said and it was very quick and it, it kind of like a momentous moment you know and it's it can be glossed over just taking 19 of those words out uh gave it a pg-13 rating which automatically gave it a um bigger audience and made it you know more quote-unquote family friendly however that did add two months to the time from when it was initially supposed to be released. It added two more months on top of that. So if we already have marketing coming out and then your movie doesn't come out until an additional two months after that, it's kind of like there's been this lull. You know, there was this afterthought lull. And that's going to make an impact, unfortunately. I love that they went with a PG-13 rating and by eliminating all the F-bombs except for one, uh, we were able to get creative uh, variations of the F-word, such as Mother Humper. (laughs) Yeah, and another thing, too, is I tried to look for this. Um, I don't see any, They, I mean, it was overdubbing and re-edits. Some of that is dubbing and they are saying the F word, but, but I don't see it. I don't see yeah, it. Yeah, I don't. And I, don't. And I, and I love it. You know, I, I kind of like that. I, I kind of like that it's like a wholesome type movie. And by saying Mother Humper, you're adding humor to it. Too, oh yeah, 100%. That. I mean, I love that line. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is pretty, pretty funny. Well, let's stop there. We'll come back for some more Tremors talk at the end of the episode, but uh, let's get into our picks of the week. So I stayed heavy with the monster movies with The Relic, but you went for De Palma's Raising Cain, which I think is one of his more original movies that he, he wrote and directed. I'm really glad that you say that. I'm glad you think so. Um, I love a good, taut 90s thriller, and lucky for me, that entire decade was littered with them. Some were better than others, for the most part. You know, I think that they were pretty formulaic, but the subject matter, the twists and turns, those are the things that made each one distinct, even if you only remember them for one scene. So, revisiting Brian De Palma's Raising Cain, which was produced by Gail Ann Hurd, who did Tremors, which I said before, I went back to look at this one, and I kind of, I kind of stalled out. I couldn't remember really what Raising Cain was about, and it was a lot different from what what my brain did remember. 
Um, I must have been too young to really appreciate De Palma's direction and was left feeling like this movie belonged back in the 1960s days of Hitchcock's Psycho or Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. Raising Cain follows a respected child psychologist, painly perfect, vanilla family man named Dr. Carter Nix, played impeccably by John Lithgow. Carter decides to take some time off work and be a stay-at-home dad while his wife starts straying from their relationship, starting to uh, take back up this affair that she uh, entertained years prior. As she's become disinterested in their marriage, she's also not noticing that Carter's almost clinical style of at-home child care is devolving into more of like a psychological study of their daughter, while she also has zero idea of his lifelong struggle with multiple personality disorder and mixing Carter's presumed-to-be-dead child psychologist father who's re-upped his interest in kidnapping children for experimentation and who is also the sole reason for Carter having at least three other personalities. This story might sound complicated. Okay, I, I get that, but I assure you, this psychological thriller takes every opportunity to spell out what is exactly happening in the movie. For me, the number one reason to watch it is John Lithgow. He plays five different people in the movie. Four of them all reside within the lead character of Carter Nix, and also the dastardly black hat wearing, so obviously the bad guy, psychologist, child napping father. Lithgow is always a solid actor in anything he's in. I feel um, a theater actor like him could be probably the only person who could believably pull off a role like this, too. Brian De Palma's vision for this movie may not be for everyone, but I certainly found it to feel fresh, even if it was kind of intentionally pulling from a Hitchcockian influence. I texted you, Justin, I don't know if you remember this, when I was watching it, um, like the, I think the third time around, and said that I really felt like that Raising Cain came from like a 60s horror style, like including, you know, using slanted framing of shots to indicate that something's amiss. And I know that that's used still in movies like nowadays. Um, but, you know, this this idea puts us on uneven ground and this this feeling that something is wrong. But this inspiration isn't solely limited to cinematography or style choices, although that is a huge part of Raising Cain. The movie's also a soap opera. It's over-dramatized. It's this whole style that really aids in making you feel like you are indeed watching a movie. There's at no point where you feel like this is, you know, really happening in my reality. It feels like a movie. Anyone remember how Clive Barker's Hellraiser kind of feels like this at times? Like super soap opera-like? Well, Raising Cain has a lot of these moments, too. It's certainly an almost unseen style choice, I think, more so these days. It was really big in the late 80s and 90s. This movie does have a bit of camp to it as well, which ties right into that, you know, melodramatic atmosphere. I can't get down with this, but this camp aspect can take people out of the reality of the movie and create this sense of cheesiness. But if you, you know, maybe sense some dark humor in the movie, you're certainly not wrong and had to be intentional. It's just up to you whether or not you can be down with watching this. The minimal usage of sharp, hurried music, except for like crescendo, eye-widening moments, really stands out um, to make moments in the movie, like make the audience question their sanity of what's really happening in the movie. But there is also this alarmingly noticeable absence of music in the movie, too, which only emphasizes tension. 
And the, the sense of uneasiness is selectively used in the film and causes us to feel very exposed. At least I that's how I felt watching it. Significant moments where the music kicks in to highlight haunting, minimal times where we're writing just this one note on a violin. It really just makes you feel so wound up and like something's going to happen. In the thriller genre, um, doesn't even matter like what decade, there's generally a moment where everything is explained, whether it's, you know, the killer, a doctor, a character that's been holding a secret motivation for the entire premise of the movie. There's always this moment. And in Raising Cain, this part absolutely rules, but you may not even notice what's so cool about it and unless you like watch it so many times through like I have. These moments typically involve a lot of talking and explaining the movie. Taking case of Psycho, it's, you know, at the very end when everything is explained about Norman Bates and the audience becomes aware of why he is the way he is. In Raising Cain, this is an unbroken four-minute tracking shot of actor Francis Sternhagen, who plays the doctor who worked with Carter's child-stealing psychologist father and knew everything about his previous misdeeds. And with this explanation, and we see you know, what we have for two-thirds of the movie— everything now falls into place and there's this like super dramatic like shot where we we were just like sucked into this entire story which could be like kind of boring but like how how we weave in and out of this shot it's like couldn't be any more perfect and we know that we're headed for some seriously intense conclusion Generally, Raising Cain, from from what I can tell, what I've surmised, is not high up on the list for like movies that a lot of De Palma fans love. Like it's appreciated, but sometimes lackluster for some people. And I think that this is because we're more used to seeing this type of movie done as a '60s horror movie. But it is remarkably inspired, albeit a you know, kind of preposterous plot, but still full of tension and pretty sickeningly twisted for combining multiple personality disorder and the traumatizing of children. If for nothing else, John Lithgow is so impressive. And if you like his darker turn in the Showtime series, Dexter, you can certainly appreciate him in this role. And God, the climax of the movie, it's completely improbable, but so entertaining and done in this extended slow motion way. I've rewatched just the ending of the movie probably too many times. And in true classic horror film, there's that final shot revealing that the horror actually hasn't ended right before the credits roll. Raising Kane is just a brilliant homage to classic thrillers. And I really, really loved revisiting this one. Yeah, it's a great pick. I, um, I really, really feel like that's a movie that utilized John Liskow's like quirky menacing vibe uh, that you saw a little bit more in the Dexter season four mm-hmm. but I, I think he just like does a great job of almost kind of hemming it up and raising Kane yeah he's I mean he's a great act he's an actor you know he's a great actor and you know we see a lot of his you know, frantic, sweaty, hurriedness. And then we also see him as a total slime bucket, you know, just awful, awful person in this. And someone that's very controlled in their inward insanity. He's just really versatile in this movie. And um, yeah, I really love watching it. Yeah, De Palma can be really hit and miss for me. Like uh, his misses, I really can't get into, but he's got some really bright moments in his career. And 
definitely Raising Cain is is up there on the list. All right, it's time to tell me about The Relic. So The Relic. This was a movie, I got to tell you, man, I don't really remember it coming out. And it, I, I, I know that it was a bomb at the box office, but it's not one that I that I honestly remember. I don't know how this one slipped past me, but watching it this last week, I was really into it. You know, it's it's definitely a typical monster movie in a lot of ways, but I think that it's like a really intelligently and really well-made monster movie. It was directed by Peter Hyams, who his career is like all over the place. The guy's like done uh, a lot of sci-fi stuff like Outland 2010. He's done comedies like Running Scared. He made one of my favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme movies of the 90s with Time Cop. And with The Relic, I think he made like a really taut, a really big looking, like intelligent monster movie that the same thing with Tremors kind of builds up a story and builds up characters that you actually care about so that there does seem to be like a real sense of terror, you know, because, you know, you've invested some time in the characters in the story. Well, the movie uh, starts out a lot of ways in like a, like an Indiana Jones movie. It's, it's in South America and this anthropologist is bringing these relics back to Chicago's natural history museum, which is where the majority of the movie takes place after drinking this strange concoction that the uh, natives had given him, he uh, disappears. And when the boat that he is bringing back the relics on shows up in Chicago with uh, everybody on board uh, has been beheaded and uh, parts of their brains have been sucked out. The lead detective on the case, played by Tom Sizemore, tracks the investigation to the... Chicago Natural History Museum because one of the guards there in the middle of the night is uh, mysteriously killed and his he's also been decapitated and his brains have been sucked out so there's a connection here that the detective is trying to investigate uh, meanwhile we have a story with Penelope Ann Miller who works at the uh, History Museum you know we kind of get invested in her story because she's up for a big grant one of her co-workers is also up for the grant and so there's a little bit of rivalry there so we get a little bit of insight on the, you know setting up the story of the museum because they have a big exhibit coming up and that's you know they have a big opening night uh, a lot of their funders come so it means a lot of money for the museum and the movie kind of like reminded me of this pandemic because the detectives like, no, there's danger in this museum. We need to shut it down. A lot of the rich people are saying, no, it has to, you know, this is a big night for us. It has to go on. And ultimately the rich people get trapped in the museum with this creature, this monster creature, because uh, they allowed uh, parts of the museum to stay open. So we have this uh, monster movie where the location, that, you know, I think is kind of an interesting, like, they're, they're trapped in this huge museum. The detective and also uh, Penel- Penelope Ann Miller's character is trying to figure out exactly what this creature is. They start understanding that it's connected to the anthropologist in the beginning who came back from South America. And he has somehow mutated a little bit into this creature that feeds off of like a specific kind of plant. And when it can't get that, it feeds off a specific part of the human brain. And this thing is pretty gruesome looking. Uh, It's sort of looks like a mix between like a like some sort of like prehistoric boar with weird tusks. And it's 
you know, the movie starts out not being that gruesome, but toward the end of the movie, there's a lot of beheadings of things like chopping people's heads <laughs> off and like sucking their brains out. And it, it's, it's pretty nasty. The special effects were done by Stan Winston, who did, uh, you know, the aliens, the predator movies, Jurassic park. And so these are pretty, you know, I think there's a mix of practical mixed with digital, you know, and it's, it looks pretty good for a mid nineties movie. It looks pretty good. Um, but man, the, the last, they were definitely going for some like gross out effects. The last 30 minutes of this movie are kind of like a full on action packed them trying to kill the monster, the monster trying to kill them. But overall there's some good subplot. There's good story here. There's good acting. It's all the makings of like, I think a really, for the most part, kind of like this classy, intelligent monster movie that you normally didn't see. I mean, the the 90s were full of like sort of B-movie-ish sci-fi monster movies that generally were kind of like a ripoff of Alien. And certainly you can say the same for this movie to say it's like, you know, it's the same movie except for they're instead of a spaceship, they're in a museum. But I think there's a little bit more to into that. I think that there's some good character development. I think that there's good subplot. And I think it's like a really finely executed monster movie that has some genuine scares, some genuine like gross out moments and uh, just a lot of entertainment value. Man. Yeah. I, I know all of the um like actors of course in this movie and i know like i've seen the trailer but i've never seen this and i this is something that's completely up my alley i would watch this movie in a heartbeat it's it's good it sucks you in and that's that's what i love about it it it's a movie that sucks you in and then gives you you know packs the punch in the you know the third act and uh penelope ann miller and linda hunt teaming up for another movie since uh kindergarten cop if i do remember correctly yeah, yeah. too and, and Tom Sizemore, I think, always does good at like sort of like a grizzled type detective <laughs> character, you know. He's he always sorta, grizzled. Yeah, yeah, always grizzled. Has that? I I I love his voice. Yeah, it's it's like kind of soothing. Like I would want you know him to give me some pillow talk at at the end of the evening, but I would also like be kind of scared of him yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But uh, highly recommended. If you haven't seen The Relic, uh, you can rent it on Amazon Prime. I actually uh, had a uh, free credit on iTunes, so I, I rented it there. Um, and had, well worth the rental. Yeah, I'm thinking I might actually, I might pay. I might not wait for this to be free somewhere. I might just pay to rent this actually tonight. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not one that I ever really hear talk about, and it's not one that I that I, uh, see pop up, but, um, I, you know, was, uh, usually when I'm watching a movie, I'll put on Facebook, like, this is what I'm watching or whatever. And, uh, one of my friends, uh, texted me in the middle of me watching the movie and, and was like, Oh man, relic scared me so bad when I was a little kid. I haven't seen it since then. Um, and, but I, I really like, it's not a movie. I wonder if like many people have seen it. Cause I just, I just never really hear talked about. And it's, shocking to me that it's one that I, I don't remember from back in the day so those are our picks of the week the relic and raising cane but let's keep moving on here's your murray moment chicks dig me because i rarely wear underwear and when i do it's usually something unusual i think i need a root canal i'm sure i need a long slow Come and shake my monkey tree again! Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. 
Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. Now, Tremors got me thinking of Americana music for this Murray moment. Not because the movie's riddled with it or anything, but because Bill Murray and musician and Tremors star Kevin Bacon are both fan of the style. And in a sad, cosmic coincidence, this this one kind of fell on my lap. On April 7th, beloved folk musician John Prine died from complications from the COVID-19 virus, and video tributes of his songs befell the internet, including one from Kevin Bacon and his wife Kara Sedgwick, with a sweet little rendition of John's song, In Spite of Ourselves. You should check that out if you can. It's it's might, might uh, pull some tears from you. Uh, remembering that both John and Billy are Chicago boys, I thought of a story I heard Billy once tell a couple years back about the musician. When Billy was first at Second City, John Prine was playing at the Earl of Old Town, literally across the street from the legendary Second City Theater on North Wall Street. John remembered seeing those golden early days of the formative theater troupe with Billy, John Belushi, Brian Doyle Murray, and Harold Ramis, just to name a few. I'd never held a job for as long as I had held that job, so that was a very exciting time for me, Bill said of those days. He remembered walking into Second City one day and seeing John Prine's name still proudly displayed in the window of the Earl, you know, like announcing who's playing that night. My God, he said, that guy John Prine's still working. He worked the same sort of hours. So you just think, I wonder what's going on over there. So sometimes when John and friends would be playing late, the Second City folk would stumble on over and see some live music. They'd be playing a little longer, Bill said, and you'd see them after they had completely manipulated the crowd. And there were men crying and smoking and drinking. And there were women who were just adoring and you'd go, ugh, musicians. You know, they worked their ways on people, but that was a great period in Chicago. John and Bill's paths would cross from time to time. Bill even appeared with John in the bluegrass band featured in 2009's Get Low, The Steel Drivers, at the Grand Ole Opry to cover Prine's song Paradise. Bill always felt emotionally affected by John. In 2016, he even wanted him flown in for when he was ceremoniously awarded the Mark Twain Prize for Humor. And though his attempt was unsuccessful... Bill wanted John there because he felt like the man could make you laugh like no one else. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the storytelling master John Prine, many of his songs have the most earnest twinge of humor involved. But, you know, he's a musician, not a comedian. He's not really thought of as the latter. That said, after John died, Bill felt inspired to contact a buddy at the Washington Post to recount a story about how the man had affected him something that he had actually shared a couple years before. In the story, Bill says that he was, for the first time in his young life, genuinely depressed. Not clinically, but he was a real bummer, a downer to be around. And this stemmed off of a breakup. I don't really know from whom, but I could secretly speculate. I had my heart broken, and for the first time in my life became depressed, like really, really, really depressed. I didn't leave my house. I just stayed in my house, and finally... I remembered something that Hunter Thompson said to me after a very long, long night. He said, well, uh, we're just going to have to rely on John Prine for a sense of humor. Excuse my terrible Hunter S. Thompson impression there. Of he and Hunter, Bill said, we were both deeply dark. 
And then he put on this John Prine record and thought, well, that's kind of interesting. He thinks of him, John Prine, as a humorist. Bill remembered this in the midst of his dark fog, and when he found this lengthy record of John's, Bill thought to himself about Hunter, man, who the hell put him in charge of who has a sense of humor? But then says, I listened to the record, and I listened to it, and finally there's this song, Linda Goes to Mars, and I remembered reacting to it and going, huh, huh, that's kind of funny. And that was it. That was the moment. That was the moment that Bill said he touched the bottom of his depression and started climbing his way back out. That was the beginning of his return. No person could make me smile. No person could make me glad in any way. I was a really unfortunate character for a pretty long time, Billy said. And that song, Linda Goes to Mars, that was the one that got me around. And after that, I came to know John and really realized what a wonderful gift was given. Now, John was a quieter fellow, especially shy in his early days. He admitted telling lengthy stories on stage because he was nervous about his singing and wasn't the greatest at tuning his guitar either, so sometimes he'd be up there talking and tuning upwards of 15 minutes. And personally, it's his storytelling, whether it's through talking or through song, that makes John Prine so special to me. His stories are so colorful, no matter if you like his style of music or not. You may remember back in the Murray moment in uh, episode 39 of Candyman, me talking about when Billy was so depressed after his first improv class at Second City and he bombed and he just like walked all the way to the major south side of Chicago. After that, Billy hitchhiked all around for a long while and gained stories, learned how to tell stories and honed how to entertain people. All of a sudden, I could do it. I don't know how it happened, but until you can tell a story, you can't act and you probably can't play music either. I had to go out and live some and have something to say in order to stand in my own shoes and feel confident enough to tell anybody anything. I know this Murray moment kind of meandered around a little bit, but in the spirit of both Billy and Kevin Bacon being unified in their forever appreciation of John Prine, here's your little trip back in time to some moments which may help light the way when we feel we've reached the bottom. There's always humor in everything, right? Yeah, thanks, Fred. That was a sort of a bittersweet Murray moment. Yeah, you know, they're they're bound to they come up every now and again. It makes me appreciate uh Bill Murray and, and Kevin Bacon even more though that they have such a appreciation for John Prine. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things like uh like admittedly I've known John Prine songs but I've never really done like a full dive into him until after his death. Um I did know who he was just because of like that style of music I you know appreciate. But man, yeah, he's um he's a really special character and I was uh after he passed away, it was overwhelming to find out how many people really liked him as much as I did. More so. Yeah, if you if you haven't listened to any John Prine, uh, definitely uh, is worth uh, checking out. Definitely one of the more, uh, I think, prolific storyteller type songwriters in the history of music. Yeah, I was on a car trip the other day for like an hour, and I listened to just him nonstop, and it was like a cross between like laughing and then also like, man, this is a gosh darn good good jam right now. Yeah. Some yeah. a lot of humor in his music. So much, yeah. Well, thank you so much for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, before we uh, call it quits on our Tremors episode, did you have any final thoughts? I know I have one for sure. 
usually I, it, it's hard for me to find one sometimes, but, but I actually got one this time. I know I usually have 87 too. Why don't you go first? Speaking of music, the score to Tremors is kind of interesting. It's, it's kind of has like a big intense, uh, score at times. Then it sort of has this like country tinged, uh, kind of quiet score at times. And, um, I think it really works, but and strangely enough, uh, the score was by two composers. The credited score for Tremors is Ernest Troost, who is the one who did a lot of the country type, you know, sounds you, that you hear in the score. Um, but he was actually uh, replaced last minute by Robert Folk, who is not credited as a composer for the movie, which is very weird to me. But I, I don't know if I'd, I'm sure it's some sort of legal thing or they can't put two people down or whatever. But they actually ended up using Ernest True stuff for really the first half of the movie. And then some of the heavier, more climactic scenes are, are composed by Robert Folk. So there's uh, actually two separate composers uh not working together creating two different scores for one movie um i I think that's kind of wild that's not something that seldom happens in movies yeah yeah that never that never happens and and kind of wild that you know the main guy got replaced by somebody last minute but he still got credit for the whole thing um which is which is strange to me because they're so different you know the but somehow they fit together maybe i don't know I, i feel bad robert Robert Folk didn't get the <laughs> uh, didn't get the credit that he was due for doing a lot of the composition for for Tremor. Okay. So so, thank you, Robert Folk, for your uncredited contribution to this uh, wonderful movie. Yeah, we're giving him credit right now, and I mean that's pretty interesting. Go back and watch this movie and just look at it from a music point of view and see if you can notice the difference. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and when and you and you will totally notice it after you after this information because like you, you, there's a the Robert Folk score the big sort of uh, really kind of what you expect out of like a big Hollywood score with like soaring horns and violins and and the Robert or in the uh, Ernest Truce score is you know the you know like very uh, <laughs> yeah, more yeah. like harmonicas and almost like the like the mouth you know, type weird sounds that you would kind of see in like a country move, you know, like a Western. I think that that's pretty fascinating. Now I want to watch it again. That's the problem is we record these episodes and then I just like want to watch all of the movies that we're talking about all over again. Oh yeah. It's, it's kind of gives me a reason to keep watching. Like even last night I I was nice outside. So I, I just brought my little television outside and had a couple beers by the fire. And I was like, "Ah, I'll watch Tremors one more time before we record. No, I told I watched Tremors earlier today again. Yeah, I don't know how many times recently I've seen it. Um, my final thought is that probably one of the more well-known stories, but just in case you don't know this, if you're uh, you know unfamiliar with some behind-the-scenes thing, um, the fact that uh, Kevin Bacon had a, a mini meltdown while uh, not like while on the set, but when. Uh, I guess the realization kind of hit him where he was in his career, in his life. And he's like, I'm in this B movie about underground friggin' worms. What am I doing with my life? What has happened to my career? And like totally had a meltdown about it. One, I can't imagine 
hearing that story and working with him on the movie as an actor or a crew member after that. And two, he totally owns that now and is like, yeah, I, I did feel that way. And, uh, now I credit tremors with like everything in my career. And, um, that was just how I was feeling at the time. And it, you know, it is what it is. But I, I think if anything, that story can show that, Sometimes we don't know what's going to happen in in our life. And like something that seems like a mistake can actually end up being one of the most pivotal moments in, in our lives, you know. And for me, as far as Kevin Bacon's career goes, he's I don't think of him in Footloose. I think of him in Tremors and Diner. But like Tremors is like the movie, the Kevin Bacon movie, you know. Yeah, I always think of like, you know, for every actor there's always one or two movies that they're going to show the clip of when they do the in memoriam at the Oscars, you know, where they (laughs) have the music and they show clips of all the people who have died that year. And it's like, most certainly with Kevin Bacon, I I would assume they're going to show footloose and tremors. He has some, he has so many silly lines in this movie too. Um, I can just, I just want to put together like a clip reel, like a three minute clip reel of him screaming something (laughs) in this movie. Well, I guess that's all we have for Tremors. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Um, this has really been a fun one for me to uh, revisit and watch a bunch of times. I, I just never get I never get sick of this movie. It really is so much fun. And even revisiting the sequels, it was fun just because of the overwhelming love of, of the first one. Yeah, Tremors never gets old. It makes sense why it was always a sleepover favorite and why so many people have fond memories of it from from uh their childhood it's a good one to turn on and like just like the dead heat of the summer too (laughs) it is it is but don't forget it has that slime factor so you're not gonna feel parched while watching it (laughs) well uh we hope you've enjoyed tremors next up what do we have next up i'm trying to think here uh next up's gonna be that thing you do yeah oh yes yeah that thing you do another one that i just never get sick of that is one charming movie so i I look forward to to talking about that one i've been singing the song from that for weeks now and it's like i i i can't i don't know the last time that i saw it but i know that song i know that song so well well a lot of fun coming up for you our next episode um, if you'd like to check out back episodes, uh, you can go to don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Uh, we have all our old episodes archived there, as well as a merch store where you can buy some uh, cool podcast merch, as well as other goodies like VHS keepsake boxes, movie posters, all kinds of stuff. Pretty much anything that we uh, dug out of our, 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 our memorabilia closet <laughs> we threw up uh-huh. on there for sale so we can <laughs> earn money to help uh, keep creating a, a bigger and better a podcast for our listeners uh, please follow us on social media you can find us on facebook twitter instagram and youtube at don't push pause podcast if you want to reach us ask us anything tell us what movie you're watching tell us uh, movies that you hope we do in the future you can contact us directly at don't push pause podcast at gmail.com so until next time i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay reber thanks so much for listening thanks guys stay safe out there